Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 178, The Tradition. Today, we'll discuss Jericho Brown's Pulitzer Prize-winning collection of poetry entitled The Tradition. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Welcome to the most peaceful time in American history. (laughs) Boring, Uh, boring, boring. What the the listeners should know is that we we, we just called each other to, to record this episode and spent an hour catching up just among ourselves because it feels like so much is going on in our lives and in our country and in our world. You know, Uh, I regret ever saying that I wanted to live in interesting times. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. Oh my God. You know, yeah, all those times that you're like, is this a historical moment that we'll remember forever? And it's like, absolutely fucking not. All those other times. (laughs) Yeah. It used to be that I would um, I would keep the front page of newspapers when historical things happened. And so, <laughs> like, in my closet, I have this plastic bag. I don't know what I'm ever going to do with this stuff. I don't have kids, but I'm going to show it to my kids, where I've got, like, Princess Die dies or whatever. <laughs> and if I were to start collecting newspapers from horrible things that have happened in America, what I do is I just have the New York Times delivered to me in a Every plastic day. bag, <laughs> and I just, just throw it in my it closet. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just, oh just screenshot the uh, the Twitter front page every, <laughs> every five minutes. Yeah. This was a huge news day. No, five minutes later was another huge news day. Yeah, there's so, this great quote, and I'm I'm not, I'm not going to remember who said it, but it's you know some famous historian or whatever that said there are um, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are years where decades happen. Oh, I love that. And isn't that great? And it's like a really, it's, 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 I've been thinking about that so much lately. Um, Yeah, because I remember, you know, I think growing up as a teenager in the 90s, there was a lot of nostalgia in Northern California where I grew up. There's just so much nostalgia for the late 60s, early 70s, and the sense of like, that's when things were, you know, possible and, and, and we messed it up and like, let this moment, and now it just, to be living in a moment that, that where the responsibility feels that palpable to like be active and to be engaged. It's so terrifying and anxiety producing. <laughs> I don't want to, I want to go back to the safety of the, the, the com era. Oh my well, God. Actually, yeah. We all just yeah. had our heads in the sand. Wait, Remember I, the nineties when history slept? Wasn't, <laughs> wasn't that a time? Yeah, incredible. Uh, okay. I want to do something and we, we, this is just an invitation to go off the rails, but I was talking about this with my friends last night. Let's go around and say one thing about American culture that you think will change forever because of this. Okay. It's so interesting to think about. I will go first because I've already thought about this. Um, I think that the, there's been this huge surge in interest in birding. Um, and I think like, (laughs) Bird conservation and local conservation will become really well funded um, because people are spending and this this is real um, so much time getting into to birds like local Audubon societies and bird organizations are experiencing this like insane boom in songbird interest. Wow. Isn't that wild? It's wild. <laughs> it's wild. Well, I actually think I Which wonder is if, now the new slogan of the birdings. You know, piggy, 
piggybacking on that that thought though like you know you hear you're hearing about how everybody's camping right now and like rediscovering yeah. national parks and like the outdoors and they're like like they're all just full and um that's that's actually really cool you know i wonder if that'll create a sort of generation of people that weren't going to be campers otherwise um and and hopefully get some more funding to our national parks and create as many outdoor spaces as possible that would be a great side effect of this man yeah I, uh, similarly, um, I think that the big change is going to come in the hard pants industry. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, jeans this have existed. tough waist industry. Yeah. <laughs> jeans and buttons and zippers have existed for quite a while now. And I think that the hard pants era is over. Oh, no. From now on, it is, it's nothing who, but sweatpants. I have sweatpants. friends who own a jeans company. I was just talking to them. <laughs> I'm serious. They're actually doing fine. I mean, they, they said everything sort of dropped a little bit, like all clothing companies, but they're, they're shipping jeans. So, I mean, maybe I don't know, we can so. narrow it down, Todd, to just buttons. Like, buttons have been around for, I don't know, seven, eight hundred years. Like, yeah. do we need buttons as no. a fastener? No. Elastic waistbands with a drawstring is all American needs. <laughs> I, I And look, if I have to go somewhere from here on out where I can't wear soft pants, and by soft pants, I mean sweatpants or basketball shorts, why would I ever go? And also... I would have I would use buttons if I was wearing tearaway sweatpants. <laughs> so I can go from That can be achieved with Velcro. <laughs> that can uh, be with you know, any any girl out there with big boobs gave up buttons on top long ago. It's just it's a fit buttons problem. Buttons on top. Um, I think buttons are done. <laughs> so one of the things I've been thinking about is the uh, the sort of resurgence of the suburb, you know, like that I feel like for the last 20 years or so, there's been, you know, all across the world, this trend towards urbanization. Um, and and I've always been a big supporter of it because I think like personally and, and then philosophically and the way, you know, economically the world works, it seems like if you can get clusters of people to live tightly together and then have more open space uh, outside that you can share you know, like uh, the idea of national parks, for instance, and like uh, access, equal access to those areas. That's like so much better environmentally. It's better economically. But one of the biggest dangers of those kinds of clusters of people is disease pandemics. Right. Um, and in response to this pandemic, it seems like people are redistributing into, you know, yes. more private spaces. And so we're having this new version of white flight from the, you know, what happened in the, the early, the late 60s, early 70s and into the 80s which was not great for our country. Um, and, you know, I, it, it's, it's going to be interesting because in some ways, like politically, it's redistributing our country. So there's a lot of blue state people uh, moving into red state areas. And that's going to be really interesting because our, our government might suddenly become a little more representative of our actual population as opposed to this imbalance where we've had this conservative you know, hijacking of the majority. Um, and so that's going to be interesting and, and, and in some ways positive. But I think it's going to also be really negative in the same way that it was negative in the 80s and 90s to just spread people out into suburbs and to create these enclaves of like-minded people. I, I, it's going to be weird. It's going to be... So I don't know. And maybe the suburbs will become more diverse this time around and more interesting, but it's, it's doubtful. Um, well, you know, what's interesting is um, I've been watching late at night on Hulu or <clears throat> whatever streaming service that I have at the time 
like murder in the heartland or cold case in the heartland, whatever it might be. <clears throat> and it's these tiny little towns dotted across America where some horrible fucked up murder happens. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm interested for the period side of, Oh, someone died and they didn't took 12 years to solve it. But I'm also like, man, these people got big yards. <laughs> a lot of space like yeah it's you know like all these stories it's the same like you know it wasn't like other places you could ride your bike down the middle of the street and i was like well that is nice <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean yeah. never mind the horrible man-eating serial killer who's out there they caught him so the odds are he's done but like last night <laughs> we were watching like one o'clock in the morning this uh this show called cold valley about these five unsolved murders that happened um between washington idaho and oregon in um and sort of along the snake river which is not far from where my grandparents had their house in walla walla washington and i was telling wendy as we were watching i was like you know it's so beautiful up there you know there's a lot of open space and so, you know there's it's also there's desert and then there's water and then there's also forest it's just a i mean like as a serial killer it is a great place to be stationed <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but i was like also just like you lots know, of just good like, body hiding spots it also is just like a it's like a lot of it's like a lot of place where you can just be free and you can just roam you don't have to worry about things like that and she was like yeah okay it's <laughs> like is there a starbucks it's like well i don't know but right everything's mail-in now and it was last time I went to fucking starbucks uh, right. i can tell you march 13th um <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think there is something about people filling in the, the portion of the United States where there's nothing yeah. <laughs> with themselves, at least for a little while. But, I mean, I think the other big cultural thing is that, you know, for the majority of society, you really don't need to be in your office every single day. No. You know, and I, I think working from home, um, you know, is better for the environment and it's I think it's better for your mental health. Like, if you worked three days in the office and two days at home going forward, and you actually got the work done in those two days at home, why not do it, you know, if you don't need to be in, in that office using those resources? Oh, my God. If, if, if the American work day, work week, work year can start to resemble more like the European model, you know, where people have actual vacation time, mm -hmm. they don't have this, like, overtime mentality that we do, I think that would be so healthy for us. Um, and if yeah. that ends up being a result of this, that would be great. Uh, or but, the opposite result. Where people just work constantly from every location. Could also right. happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, for the writing industry, what I've found is that it uh, it's really been no different. Nope. <laughs> just less distractions. Less having to tell people you can't hang out with them. Yeah, I mean, it's less going to readings and pretending that you're happy to be there drinking the two-buck chuck. <laughs> but from the actual production of books, stories, and screenplays, right. things like that. like Still just sitting keep, down and... Keeping the same hours, yeah. not shaving. That's fine. <laughs> so, Listeners, speaking... if you could see, if you could see oh. your hosts right now, by the way, Ryder and I, also the shaving industry is going out of business. Ryder and I have full beards, and so does Julia. <laughs> <laughs> We've all just let it go. I've yeah. really, I have not cut my hair since the pandemic, so I am full on mullet, like yeah. just letting it go. Wow. I got the shemp. Wendy's been cutting my hair poorly. <laughs> 
yeah. What were you going to say, Julia? I was just going to transition to the book that we're going to oh, talk right. about. Oh, right. Oh, right, right, right. Um, yes, we do read on this but, show. You know, because you mentioned books for a second before talking about your hair. So how dare um, you? I don't know how to do the transition now. <laughs> I'll just do it. <laughs> Jericho Brown is from Shreveport, Louisiana. He's the author of the books Please and New Testament. His poems have appeared in pretty much every major publication for poetry. And he's the winner of lots of awards, including the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry for this collection, The Tradition. Um, what do you guys think? Let's 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 dive in. Well, we should start by saying that when we actually read this initially, it was maybe a month or two months after George Floyd had died. Mm -hmm. And then we took a bunch of time off. Um, we were on vacation. We had a bunch of episodes that were already recorded. And then we came back to this this week. And this week is uh, the first week of September, if, uh, if you're listening. And subsequent to our first reading, to this reading, even more African-American men have been shot by cops. Mm -hmm. And reading this book in this time is extraordinarily eye-opening. There is a poem in this book called Bullet Points that should be sent out to every school in America and read by every student it will in be. that school. I think it'll be canonized. I think it'll be like one of, yeah, I think it's going to be the poem from this, you know, from this time period that, 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 that kids read about. I hope it's, so yeah, good. I mean, this is a book of profound sorrow and violence, um, yeah. but also profound beauty. And he also does a thing I've never seen before, which is he creates his own form, the duplex yes. poem, mm -hmm. which I don't know enough about poetry to explain, but writer probably does. Um, that I was like, holy shit, these duplex poems are fucking amazing. But I, 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 I mean, Jericho Brown's a, a genius, an absolute genius. And, you know, reveals so much about himself, but also about the speaker in every single poem. Because, you know, you can't, you can't assume that every poem is about Jericho Brown. Um, and I, I just think this is some of the most necessary writing of our time period that, that's, that exists. Yeah. Julia, okay. what do you think? Strong Julia's like, start. I hated it. I hated it. I think you guys are no, hacked. of course. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, sometimes we read something where going around in a circle and saying, like, I liked it. I didn't like it. I kind of liked it. Doesn't feel like an appropriate uh, critical response. <laughs> um, so I think when approaching a book like this, you know, it's more interesting to dig down into why you really liked it and um, or you know, why it's important, why it exists. Um, and I really loved something about these poems that I haven't seen done as well anywhere else, which is he's doing the work of the poems, which is thinking about um, his blackness, his HIV positive status, um, all this, all this other stuff. Um, but he's also like kind of exhausted and enraged by the fact that he has to do it, or he's like tired of himself right. or tired yeah. of dealing with these subjects at the same time. Right. So, um, there's, and, and that's like the feel of the, the moment, right? That feels so, so now. Um, and there's a, a poem called the rabbits where he, he pulls into his driveway or the speaker pulls into his driveway. Mm, yes. And there are these, rabbits uh in couples on the lawn and he says 
He writes, I should lie. Say they express my desire to mount and be mounted as they scurried into the darkest parts of what I pay for. But I am tired of claiming beauty where there is only truth. Um, and that idea speaks for so many of these poems. Like, here's this ugly American truth we have to deal with or this something whatever he's dealing with and he's he's both making the beautiful moment and saying this isn't beauty i'm not romanticizing this this is just awful and i love that i love that that's all over all over these poems that yeah. that mood mm -hmm. wow well described yeah, yeah. um uh, yeah i mean you, you, i i agree with everything you guys are saying and i think that um another thing that's worth pointing out because obviously poetry is always one of those sort of intimidating things it is so easy to read like mm -hmm. it's actually it's a joy to read there's no it's not i mean like i was like i think there's a there's a couple like you know greek references but for the most part it's very very accessible language just put put together i mean there's a lot of like um there's a lot of uh, langston hughes homages in this too because you know in, in the way that he uses the blues and so there's a lot of like intentionally accessible language just but it's still so gorgeous it feels like song lyrics they flow together there's a musicality to everything there's rhyming poems that are just wonderful um and i i i, I i've always loved poets that that have complexity and move from like big big worlds like um you know big political ideas to personal body mm -hmm. uh, stuff to interpersonal relationships but and I and I love poets that do that a lot, and I feel like a lot of poets do that. But he does it so effortlessly; it's so easy, and that never feels like it's never feels like these these transitions are um, you're you're just flown into them so effortlessly. You know, it's like mm -hmm. it never feels jarring. It's never like this crazy juxtaposition of like you know, oh my, you know, the way that the police are treating people with black skin, and the way that my mom used to slap us awake you know, slap our thigh. It's like, but you're, those are kind of crazy, like images to have to jump from, but then it just happens so easily in the poem. You finish the poem and you want to reread it again. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the thing. I've read this book twice already. And like, it's just, you just want to keep reading it. It's so fun. And it's so, even though it's incredibly sad and dark and depressing, and I use the word dark intentionally because he uses the word dark perfectly throughout this, this book. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, there is just something beautiful to witness mm -hmm. by reading the book. And that's, you know, I feel like, because right now there's, this is the sort of moment where a lot of um, black poets and, and overtly political black poets are getting, a, finally getting attention and they're getting a mm -hmm. lot of elevation right now. So I feel like there's a lot of work that, that, that is confronting these similar issues and similar, um, uh, similar themes and, and similar juxtapositions. But I haven't read anybody that's doing it this just poetically for lack mm -hmm. of a, you know, like anybody that's just doing this so easily and, and you just, you fly through these poems and you want to read them over and over again. And uh, I, yeah, I, I couldn't get enough of them. I think it's a masterpiece. And he, so he also, you know, he's fearless. You know, he talks about sexual violence done to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, the sexual violence done to him is a thread that goes throughout the entire book. Um, you know, it, it recurs over and over and over again. And to talk about male sexual violence to other men, I, I don't know if I've ever read it. You know, so I, I don't, I don't mm. know if I've ever read it in poetry before, certainly. Um, 
And of course, it's it's all uncomfortable and it's all extraordinarily painful. But he writes about it um, in such with with such beauty and clarity about the things that he feels and about the lingering trauma. And I mean, this is something we've talked about before on the show about that trauma isolates you. It makes you feel like you're the only person to experience that horrible thing. Even a trauma that you know other people have experienced, it, it, it feels isolating. And so here he puts into words something that I think men feel great shame about. Yeah. And if he can go out there and put it out there, then you can go out there and talk about it to someone. You can share your pain. You can divide it by speaking. And in that way, you know, I, I don't often think of books as being uh, devices for catharsis. I don't I don't look at nonfiction as being a self-help manual. And I don't look at poetry as being a self-help manual. But what I do see in poems like this is a willingness to be vulnerable. And we've talked about this before on the show. I think we talked about it with... Um, with uh, Jared Yates Sexton's book is that, you know, part of the problem with men in general <laughs> is <laughs> an, an inability to express their own vulnerability, that this, the toxicness of themselves is this bred in thing. And here he is being so vulnerable all of the time. But what the fuck does he have to lose? He's being hunted on the streets. You know, right. his right. entire life is about vulnerability. And there's this, it's a book filled with amazing poems. There's a poem called, uh, entertainment industry that I think encapsulates a lot of this, like all of these things in um, in really simple prose. He says, scared to see a movie all the way through. I got to scream each scene, duck and get down, mass shooting blues. When you see me coming, you see me running. When you see me running, you run too. I don't have kids because I'd have to send them to school. Ain't that safe as any plan for parenthood? Mass shooting blues. When you see me coming, you see me running. If you can beat a bullet, you ought to run too. I mean, it's it's like America in 17 lines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, like I read that and I'm like, what the, why am I even trying to entertain with my writing when I could be exploring what it means to be human at such a profound level while also still being entertaining. Like it's also a super entertaining wordplay that he is doing using the same words over and over again to mean something different each time. Mm -hmm. I just think that's genius. Uh, I just want to jump on what you were saying about, um, you know, like his use of sexuality and, and homosexuality and uh, in particular black homosexuality. There's a great collection of essays um I've only read, I, I want to say like four or five of the essays, so I, I haven't finished the whole book, but uh, by a guy named Andre Perry. Do you guys know Andre no. Perry? No. He's a nonfiction. And uh, I, I actually have a friend who who knows and went to college with him or whatever. And he's, he recommended this book to me uh, a couple months ago, and I've been picking it up every now and then going through an essay. And it's, it's called Some of Us Are Very Hungry Now. And it does the exact same thing um, in nonfiction prose, like memoir tidbits. Uh, exploring a lot of those same things that you're talking about, Todd. And it's so, it is just a, a subject that is very fraught, you know, mm -hmm. like male sexual violence and, and male, male on male desire, especially within the black community. Like it just, it's one of those areas of literature that hasn't been really opened up yet, you know, and mm -hmm. it's like, it's finally happening. And it was so interesting to, to be reading Jericho Brown's poetry, which is the poetic sort of version of like what Andre Perry 
was was doing an essay form and they're really they're 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 pretty experimental essays like they they they're very personal in the same way that jericho brown is and um disturbing at times you know hard to read and like mm-hmm. um and, and what i like about what jericho brown with does with those those tidbits too and and then of course when he talks about his like abusive parents and then he I, i'm pretty sure he has kids of his own because he talks about his kids or, right. or at least he creates a is there's there's a lot of narrative in these um in these poems but they're not really narrative poems it's not like it doesn't feel like say someone like sharon olds you know who's like mm-hmm. just a great narrative poet who like kind of tells you these like full stories it's they're not these are like little fragments where you get to build the whole narrative and you're right. like, wow, there's a whole life there and there's a whole history there. And I want to know more, but I actually don't need to, I kind of got it. Um, and that, that light touch to be able to write something that, that jars you and makes you like lean in and go, Oh my God, what did his dad do to him? But then mm-hmm. you don't really need to know because the trauma is perfectly expressed in two lines and the effects of it are being like narratively conveyed. It's like, it's just such distilled, condensed narr- narrative. Um, it's, it's brilliant. I, I, you know, I, I, I always thought that I needed more narrative, you know, but uh, in a way like you don't in this, it, it's kind of enough and, and you get the, like, just the, the kernel. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. And so much of this, I'm gonna the, I'm gonna try to connect what you're saying to what I'm thinking, Ryder. But it's happening on some kind of subconscious level. But <laughs> so much of this, um, so much of this book is written not for white people, but to white people, which mm-hmm. I think is something that is um, important. And even even in I mean, there's literally a couple of poems that are expressly like that, but there are some times where he addresses things in a slightly more oblique way, but are obviously dealing with wanting people to understand um, his life, his experience, or their own misunderstandings. So um, I bookmarked this poem, Four Day in the Morning, about Mm. the first line is, my mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch. Um. So I'll just read the second half of the poem because it's it's so great. Um, I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue. I'll never know. Oh, and this is the part that feels, you know, to me, for us. Um, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy. But I'd love to wake that bastard up at four day in the morning, toss him in a truck and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house, mm. a boy to keep the lawn cut, some color in the yard. My God, we leave things green. Um, <laughs> and so good. it's so good. And I think what is connecting in my mind, Ryder, with what you're saying, too, is like we don't uh, No, Let me say it this way. Black people do not owe us a full explanation of everything that's ever happened in our lives, their lives. <laughs> right. no, and that right, is sure. that is what we demand. Um, we as a culture, we as a dominant white culture demand, like, for example, when someone is shot and killed by the police, we're like, OK, well, what's everything that's ever happened to them so I can decide right, how much to care right. about yes. them? 
Right. Um, oh my god. God, it makes me so crazy. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, so you know, leaving in these kernels or purposely putting in whatever he wants, but also leaving out whatever he wants, like he's so confident in his writing, it feels like, yes, that's your right. Say whatever you want to say. Don't say whatever you want to say. Yes. And I'm going to yeah. listen to it and take it in on whatever level I'm at right now. Right. Right. That's really well put, Julie. God, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store. It makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. HelloFresh offers so many recipes to choose from each week to help you break out of your recipe rut. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week. HelloFresh offers fresh, high-quality ingredients for a super flavorful experience. Over 90% of their ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure the freshest recipes are delivered to your door. HelloFresh offers contactless delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. They cut out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just under 30 minutes or even 20 with their quick recipe options. You can save up to 28% by using HelloFresh versus your grocery store shopping trips. That's pretty damn good. HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients mean there's less prep for you and less food waste. Packaging HelloFresh uses to ship your food is almost entirely made from recyclable and already recycled content. HelloFresh's carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. Keep your fridge stocked by adding extra proteins or sides like garlic bread to your weekly order. You can easily change your delivery days or food preferences. Skip a week even if you need to. Feeding the whole family has never been easier with larger box sizes for more serving and more savings. I love cooking with my family, especially with my dog in the kitchen, pretty much waiting until I drop some food crumb to the floor. The best part is HelloFresh is committed to making fresh, delicious food available now more than ever, and it's taken extra steps to keep its employees and customers safe. HelloFresh has donated over 2.5 million meals to charity in 2019, and this year is stepping up their food donations amid the coronavirus crisis. That's pretty awesome. As someone who really loves to experiment with ingredients, items like HelloFresh's figgy balsamic pork, or even just their one-pan pork carnita tacos um, with live crema, just really adds some variety to the week that's really fantastic and something that everyone, every part of my family enjoys. And the best part is we have a special promo for our literary disco listeners. Right now, go to HelloFresh.com backslash 80LiteraryDisco and use the code 80LiteraryDisco to get a total of $80 off your order, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions may apply, so please visit HelloFresh for more details. Once again, that URL is HelloFresh.com backslash 80LiteraryDisco and use code 80LiteraryDisco when you check out to get a total of $80 off your first box. Now, back to the show. Can, can we talk about some stupid friends of mine, just briefly? Sure. Are we uh, going to want to? <laughs> these are guys I went to college with, so we have theoretically the same education. There's a subset of these dudes, and they're always men, who whenever a young African-American man is shot by the cops, says, well, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have done that. And I always respond the same way. I don't remember in the penal code, execution 
being <laughs> being the the legal result of not moving fast enough. Right. And they don't really ever have an answer for that. Yeah. Oh god, it makes me crazy. It is it's wrong. Oh. Well, he it's shouldn't have obviously blah, wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Like, hey, you know what? That's why we have laws. And last I heard, summary execution on the streets is never the result of any fucking driving penal code. Oh, my God. Getting angry. I mean, <laughs> staying angry. Staying angry. You were never not angry about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm like the fucking Hulk. My, you know, my secret is I'm always angry. Um, wow, I wonder what your Bruce Banner version is like. Love to meet him. Um, <laughs> I, I laugh less. <laughs> it's the, the the truth is, Julia. It's I I I can't fight. Like I've never gone to. I've never learned how to fight because if I learned how to fight, I'd be roaming the fucking streets. <laughs> well, That's I don't truth. even know how to connect this back to this book of poems about violence. But yeah, uh, I know. I would, I'd, That's I'd for you up. to deal with. I'd be going through next door and plotting who I'm assaulting next. Um, uh, we should talk a little bit about the formal inventiveness, like because yes. he does yes. these, he does these great homages to sonnets um, and sestinas and like traditional poetry styles, but makes them his own, completely yeah. reinvents them, and then uh, blues lyrics, like the one you read, Todd, is like clearly an homage to uh, blues style poems that like Langston Hughes created, and like it's just. Uh, there's so much uh, control and confidence that he can kind of do whatever he wants. Um, and mm. and I think playing, oh, and then there's a there's a poetry tradition he references that I didn't even know called a gazal, a gazal. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's an, an um, Arabic style of, of poetry, I guess is, is similar to a, a sonnet. And so he, you know, he's, he's, he's taking them and he creates this, uh, in particular, this duplex form uh, that he recurs to. And it's just a great form. It's like actually, you know, it's a 14 line uh, poem uh, broken up into couplets um, and they're all titled duplex. Sometimes they have like a subtitle, uh, but for the most part, it's just duplex, which uh, I'm not sure. Like, I guess that evokes it's, it evokes for me like a certain housing situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and then also for some reason, because that's broken into couplets, a duplex feels like these two sort of things stacked on top of each other, the right. way that duplexes are stacked, you know, I don't know. There's, it's really good. And, it, and it, it works. I really, I, you know, I, I've, there's a great tradition of, of people sort of appropriating forms, you know, given forms. And I just think that he's, he's doing it perfectly uh, and, and, and building this new form, uh, but still referencing and, and paying homage to poetic traditions that come before. And uh, he's just, he's just so good at it. Like, there's really not a bad line in here, um, which um, I, I don't think I can say about mo even the poetry that we've gushed about before on this. I wouldn't I would say that there's always like that one poem was just kind of a weird experiment that didn't quite work for me. Right? But this one, it's just like, no, it's like it, it's it flows from start to finish. It really there's not a bad line. There's um there's an interview with Jericho Brown in the Rumpus from 2019 done by Candace Williams, where she she does a really great job of explaining what he's doing. And oh, I, I just want to that. read this just briefly. It's just yeah. so our listeners can understand it. Um, the tradition introdu introduces us to his invention called the duplex. The duplex is a new form that renders the musicality and the structure of the gazel, which Ryder just mentioned, the sonnet and the blues on a single plane. The poem starts with a couplet of two distinct lines. 
The second line is repeated and a new line is added and then repeated until there are seven couplets of nine to 11 syllables each. Although the poem sounds iambic, it retains its relationship to the metrical tradition of the gazel. The first line is the 14th line. The rhyme via repetition and the turn are reminiscent of the sonnet. The duplex holds tradition in its embrace while calling that embrace into question. This tension and release are a means for the tradition speaker to interrogate and transcend their condition. And again, this is Candace Williams writing in The Rumpus. Wow, um, and it's a perfect distillation of what he's doing. Yeah, and I think um, I think the reason I brought up the Sestina uh, is because uh, a Sestina, I, I feel like there's one that actually is a, or closer, but it's that uh, in a Sestina, you repeat a line, you know, like a line is used uh, and then sort of inverted and like repeated over and over again. And that's, uh, I guess, yeah, that's that's what he's doing here. But what it does is it creates it creates a, a familiar landscape of of words mm -hmm. so that like really strange lines don't feel strange because those words have already been you know echoed earlier in the poem. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like setting its own terms up. So so you know, conceptually, you want to come back and, and have to like meander through it again. You want to because the words, you know, the, the word corpse, for instance, is appearing again later. And you were like, yeah, that felt right because the word corpse had been two lines ago or whatever. And it's like, so suddenly a word that shouldn't fit, you know, that conceptually is like just difficult or should, it's it's okay. It has a musical rec recurring feeling to it. Um, and that is, it's so well done uh, because the ideas are hard, you know, the ideas mm -hmm. are hard to grasp. Like sometimes I don't know what he's talking about, uh, but it almost doesn't matter because I've enjoyed the musicality of the return to those familiar words and these familiar concepts that I just want to need to read it again and, and try and get at it and feel something from the poem overall. That's, I mean, that's just the beauty, right? The surface beauty of poetry that um, we, we tend to forget, you know, we tend to mm -hmm. lose. Like we tend to think of poetry as Self, like you said, like self-helpy or like big ideas or maybe just cool images. And, and it's all of those things. But at first and foremost, poetry should be just beautiful, beautiful to read and beautiful yeah. to hear. And, well, and why don't you is. read one of these duplex poems, writer? One of the uh, three or four that he has in yeah, here. Put in the pressure on me to, to read after that. <laughs> Julie and I already have ruined Jericho Brown by our terrible own yeah. personal cadences. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Sorry, Brown. Sorry, Jericho. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and by the way, listeners, um, it's always amusing to see Ryder flipping through a copy of his books because he marks so many pages that, in fact, the entire <laughs> book is marked. And so as he's flipping through it, like every single page is dog-eared. <laughs> Duplex. Don't accuse me of sleeping with your man when I didn't know you had a man. Back when I didn't know you had a man, the moon glowed above the city's blackout. I walked home by moonlight through the blackout. I was too young to be reasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable. He dipped weed in embalming fluid. He'd dip our weed in embalming fluid. We'd make love on trains and in dressing rooms, love on the subway, love in mall restrooms. A bore at home, he transformed in the city. What's yours at home is a wolf in my city. You can't accuse me of sleeping with a man. Yeah. God, that's so good. What's yours at home I mean, is a wolf in the city. Right? And then Ooh. the way it ends with you can't accuse me of sleeping with a man, it's like this defensive heteronormativity, like but after you already know that he did sleep with somebody because he was in an argument with it's just like it's all there. It's all stacked mm -hmm. up and and yeah, because the first line echoes the last line, 
but they're very different meanings, right? It's different to right. accuse somebody of sleeping with your man to accuse them of sleeping with a man. Mm -hmm. And that transition is sort of taking you in and out of this entire experience uh, that he's, you know, oh, and the, the danger dipping weed and embalming fluid and then dipping weed and embalming fluid being something that they shared, you know? So it's like, I, it's introduced as a concept of like this scary character that like ha, it was, you know, dangerous in a way, but then we do, he dip our weed in a, So he was participating in it. It's like each, each couplet just takes whatever was happening in the previous couplet and absorbs it and changes it completely. So you have to like, you're like entering a different poem every step. Oh, mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, it's, Anything repeated makes you reconsider the same yeah. words. Yeah. Um, it's almost like you're holding up a prism and you're still looking at the same like side of it, but the light changes as you move it around. And it's yeah. so cool. And and some of them are more some of them have less adjustments per line. Mm -hmm. Um so it feels like every single word is so deliberately chosen, which I know in my head is true for all the poems in this book, no matter what the form, but this makes you understand that. It makes you think about language very directly. If I was in high school and I read this, I would be trying to do this every night in my yes. journal. Yes. <laughs> totally. Yes, absolutely. I wonder absolutely. if that's going to happen. Like, I wonder if, like, the duplex might actually catch on as a form if this Why book not? gets more popularity. Look, I would love to. Because I'm, I'm actually thinking, of, you're right. Like, yeah. I would love to just give myself a little challenge and, like, try and write one of these. Because yeah. you know, that's the point of form, right? Is that mm -hmm. they invite they invite you by their constrictions to find a new kind of creative outlet. And they, right. they, they structure it, but then also give you freedom within that structure. And that's just, that's so fun. Um it's, I mean, the book won the Pulitzer, so it's being yeah. taught to kids. So at the very least, you know, freshman year, you know, English 208 kids are yep. reading this and and writing duplexes to the people that they love. Bad duplexes mm. to the people that they love. <laughs> Nothing worse than freshman poetry in the duplex Aww. form. <laughs> hey, awesome. Can we talk about the first poem that we talked about, which is Bullet Points? Yes. Oh, yeah. um, so... Bullet points, like I said, it's it is it becomes more salient with each passing moment, and I I don't say that with any happiness. Um, it starts with one of the most powerful one, two, three, four, five, six lines of poetry I've ever read in my entire life, which are, "I will not shoot myself in the head, and I will not shoot myself in the back, and I will not hang myself with a trash bag, and if I do." I promise you, I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed or in the jail cell of a town I only know the name of because I have to drive through it. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Wow. Yep. Man. And it doesn't end any any less amazingly, <laughs> by the way. Oh my God. There, I mean, I have the Kindle version of this, and uh, I can see how many people have highlighted this line. Let's see here. You know, 630 people. I promise if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me. Yeah. And then go on. The end of the poem is so amazing. He took me from us, which as a phrase, that's just amazing. I've never heard that before. He took me from us and left my body, which is no matter what we've been taught, 
greater than the settlement a city can pay a mother to stop crying, and more beautiful than the new bullet fished from the folds of my brain. Jesus. I know. Jesus. God. Or, of course, in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) When I kill me, I will do it the same way most Americans do. I promise you. Cigarette smoke or a piece of meat on which I choke or so broke I freeze. (laughs) Jesus fucking. I mean, this entire poem, we're reading it out of order, which is. We're only reading it out of order. I'm so sorry. We can't do it justice by reading it without also crying in the middle of it. How many how many episodes of us talking about poetry where the three of us sob in the middle can the American public <laughs> really deal with? Uh, this poem, so the day that I read this poem, um, I was sitting on my sofa in my living room and I read this poem and I was, I just started to sob. And Wendy's like, what, who, did you get texted? Someone died? And I was like, Jericho Brown. She's like, I don't know Jericho Brown. I was like, no, 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 no. the poem, <laughs> bullet points. And I was, I'm reading it aloud to her and oh, I'm crying. Oh my God, it is so powerful and so necessary and so unnecessary that we have to go through this over and over and over again through the history of American life. And I'm so sad that he has to write this and so upset that the people who need it most will probably never read it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I, I think everybody should just buy this book. Just try, you know, if you have any interest in poetry and literature, you have to recognize that this is this is just one of those towering achievements that, that is going to be read and talked about for, you know, centuries uh, or assuming assuming human race can live can survive another couple centuries. Uh, All right. But but I do think I I just think that this is, you know, because, you know, I like as a document of our time, it is. it's going to be just um, amazing to look back at, but also just as a work of art and as a way to respond to the world around you. It, it's so beautiful and it just should be on everybody's shelf because we should all be taking this down every couple of months and flipping through it. And we should all be reading it to each other and um, just talking about it and, and continuing to yeah, write our own duplexes and, and approaching language and, and com- complex issues through literature and through poetry it's just it's just one of the best things i've read in so long um yeah, yeah it's really great it's really really great yeah, I, mean, I mean there's poems we haven't mentioned like riddle mm-hmm. which is an amazing poem also it's about Emmett till um i mean just uh the whole the whole book is absolutely amazing um what i wonder too and i suppose i could learn more of this by reading interviews with him um is like how do you get to this point where you're not afraid to say the deepest and darkest things. I mean, this is actually, this is a conversation I had with a student not long ago, where the student was asking me, like, how deep do I have to go in my memoir? And I was like, all the way, you got to touch bone marrow, (laughs) you know, like, if you're going to tell the story, you got to, you got to tell the whole story. Um, But the, the ability to tell the whole story and reveal so much of yourself, just lay yourself bear god that's got to be hard you know like as a novelist i i get to i get to put on masks and um i get to i get to not give every part of myself to the reader you know jericho brown doesn't doesn't have that luxury he he gives it all and i i just find that so amazing and challenging and edifying and artistically um you know brave 
on every page. Mm. We're not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, good episode. To, Happy reading uh, to all. Yeah. Hey, look. So here's the, here's the deal, listeners. You've got like by the time this episode is on the air, you've got like 50 days before the American election. Mm. Go read this book. And then go share it with your fucking aunt or your fucking uncle who doesn't understand what people are in the streets fighting about. Go hand them this book. Let them read this book. And then drive their ass to the fucking polling place and yep. tell them how to vote. <laughs> God, Literary I mean, Disco is produced and edited by Justin please. Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. <laughs> you can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. And thanks for listening. <laughs>